colleagues, as we are wrapping up the general first day work of creation, we are ready to start getting into some of the details of various days. But before that, I'd like to spend a little time on the question of where did it go? Now, what what is it? What I mean by that is that we learned that on the first day there was the Spirit of God fluttering over the waters, and we never learned that it went anywhere away. Uh, for uh, as far as we know, it is still there. Uh, we spoke about uh, two major interpretations of what this Ruach Elohim is, Spirit of God, or a great wind. Very different interpretations, both borne out by the original uh, Hebrew of the passage. But let's take now the interpretation that's the Spirit of God, which is, in truth, the more prevalent interpretation. So, we learned that the Spirit of God was fluttering over the earth. We spoke about that and some theological overtones of that. But um, as the world got more complex, as new things got created, as it expanded, it appears that the Spirit of God was still there, right in the middle of things. So how are we to understand that? I will begin with pointing out that in the ancient world, everything was to some degree conscious and volitional. Uh, things happened because they um, had some kind of a will. Uh, these things included animate objects, such as animals, and inanimate objects, not only water and earth. The earth br brought out the fruit, right? It also included various uh, intermediate conscious entities. <clears throat> the heavens declared the glory of God. There was something conscious about all of uh, creation. And uh, in the rabbinic writings, you often find uh, God or angels speaking to the sea, uh, speaking to the earth, and them responding. And the truth that wasn't only the rabbinic perception, it was also the perception of uh, the general public and, and, and the general intellectual underpinning of things. Now, wh where did it come from? If we look at very early religions, we encountered the concept of nomos. The concept of nomos basically says that there is a spirit in everything. From there comes the idea of sacred places, sacred groves of the Druids, sacred trees, mountain tops, etc., sacred grounds of the American Indian. Uh, and it's simply the fact that in certain places you feel a certain spiritual presence. In Latin we would call it nomus. It's the numinous feeling feeling of light, of presence, of something wonderful and more than natural. The second stage in the development of uh, primitive religions was personification of those feelings and actual gods, 
such as the Greeks and the Norse had. But it all started with the sense that there was something in everything. Now, rabbinic theology really surpassed that sense and went from this <clears throat> all of the world is divine, what we call in philosophical terms pantheism, to theism. There's something above the world. That thing which is above the world is called God. There are really, really three approaches in uh, classic uh, rabbinic and Jewish theology to this question. Simple theism, like it is in other religions, is that God is a person, distinct from the world which he created. He is above the world, and he acts in the world through his intermediaries. These intermediaries may be angels, prophets, forces of nature, the wind of God, the fire of God. But uh, he is really in some other reality, somewhere above the world. We personalize that by saying heavens, but what we mean is that it's not in the world. You might admit, as in some rabbinic views, that there is an interface between God and heaven, man, the world. The heaven, heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but the earth he gave to the sons of men. We have spoken about that. And uh, somewhere, uh, whether it's the top of Mount Sinai, or some uh, interfacing reality, uh, man and God can reach each other and almost touch each other uh, through some kind of a dividing transparent substance. Hence prophecy, hence the potential to do miracles. God sits on his throne above the world. <coughs> he knows everything that is called Hashkocha Klolis, general supervision, and he interferes in selected moments. He teaches us, he guides us, but uh, he is not there right with us. This is very different from pantheists who see all of nature as being divine and there being nothing above it. When you personalize it, you get the God of Thunder, you get the sun god, you get various gods of the sea, etc., etc. But the point is that there is nothing really above it, and the totality of nature is what is God, and that is that spiritual substance that we sometimes feel in our lives. There is a variation that reconciles too. When we spoke about Isaiah's theology, we talked about that too. And that is that God is both in heaven and on earth. How does that work? Well, we saw in three places in Isaiah that God's throne is in heaven, but the earth is the footstool for his feet. 
we have this uh, metaphor simile uh, three times. In the last chapter of Isaiah, in chapter 6, and in chapter 40. So in philosophy, this is called panentheism. God is in everything. So there is some uh, manifestation of him which is in the world, and there is also some, perhaps the major manifestation of him, which is above and beyond the world. That resolves uh, the classic problem of how God, who is so superior and so above all things, can interact with men. Because there's some manifestation of him, some component, you might say, if you separate his spirit from his essence, um, or even if you don't, or uh, a continuum of him. We, we have spoken about this as well, and that would be called the Spirit of God, uh, or Holy Spirit, or HaKodesh, and that would be present in the world. The problem with the approach of God being present in the world is, of course, the problem of evil. If he's present in the world, he's responsible for everything that happens here. He's right here, right next to me. Why didn't he save me from this pain? Why didn't he save a child uh, who fell out of the window on the upper floor? He's right here. He should be taking care of it. That is a serious problem, which is dealt with in many different ways. So, the Spirit of God remains in the world, and remains in the world in one of these fashions that we discussed, but it's here and present with us. Very interestingly, there's been a recent development that ties some of the strands together, and it comes not from a theistic perspective, but from a scientific one. Let's review this uh, in some detail. Just like in the world we sense that there is something apart and within the world, something we sometimes call the spiritual, and there is the physical and the material, the same way there is something in men that is exactly the same. There is our physical bodies and their drives, our senses with which we can feel and identify and know things, and there is something else. Uh, sometimes in philosophy you would express it by saying, I am my body, I am not just my body. Just like in the world, <clears throat> you can take one of three options. You can say that there is nothing but the physical, and this spiritual sense that we have is an illusion, you can say the opposite. Uh, everything is spiritual, and this physical world is an illusion. First one would be called materialism, or dialectical materialism, and the second would be called idealism. Or you can take the path of dualism. There are two realities. There's the physical and there's spiritual, so-called Cartesian approach, um, Descartes famously thought that there is one place in the body where the soul and the body interact, and that is the pineal gland, which is in the brain, right in the midline. He thought that that's where the interaction takes place. 
but this kind of dualism really mirrors the same thing we feel and cognize about the world, which is that there seems to be a spiritual reality within it, and there seems to be a physical reality within it. The Spirit of God had never left. But as the science developed, it of course overshot, like all pendulums do. You swing all the way to the side, and then you see that you've gone too far, and you need to come back to the middle. So a concept called panpsychism uh, was recently developed and is creating a lot of uh, interest and attention and a lot, a lot of discussion. I want to emphasize that it's not inherently a religious concept uh, and how and in which ways it is compatible with religious outlook or theism is in itself a subject of major discussion. But it comes to the existence of that something else in a different way and from a different direction. What basically it does, it says, well, we have a lot of science now. We can describe scientifically and mathematically, as Galileo said, mathematics is the language of science. We can describe reality in those terms, but it doesn't feel right. It's just not what we experience. So we can look at a tree and we can know that it's composed of electrical forces, of flows of juices within it, of torques and physical forces that anchor in the ground, uh, shape and properties. But that's not what we see and feel. What we see and feel is the tree. So our perception of reality, our categories in which we understand the world, is just not scientific. We don't see the world as in some kind of a scientific uh, a science fiction movie as some kind of electric flows and hot and cold spots. We see the world as categories. A key is not a piece of metal, but it has a purpose. It opens doors. And every key is the same, whether it's big or small, whether it's an antiquated shape with lock, so it's electronic. Its purpose is what determines what it is. It's a key. It's not scientific. So here too, you have several options. You can say that our perception of the world is an artifact of our brains. It's just how our brains put together things. And there is no reality but those physical uh, torques and electric fluxes and uh, uh, electromagnetic forces and gravity and uh, specific uh, gravity of things and and etc uh, etc. Et That's really all that there is. The rest is illusion and illusion. We can take a different tack and say that consciousness is actually the undergirding basis of the world. Let me explain what consciousness is. Consciousness is that which we perceive about the world. So in our consciousness, a tree is a tree. It has physical properties, but that's not what it is. And consciousness uh, is very, very basic to the way we perceive the world and understand it. So uh, a group of philosophers and scientists uh, came to a different conclusion. It, paradoxically, it has returned to somewhat similar view 
to that of the ancients. Consciousness is the underlying reality. And every object in the universe has some form of consciousness. Now, what does that mean? You can relate it to information processing. A rock is there as a piece of a pattern. It holds something down, it holds something up, it occupies space. That is what it is, just like the key opens doors. And uh, <clears throat> as such, it is aware of itself in some kind of a conscious way. Of course, not like a human is aware of things, not even as an animal in a more limited way may be aware, but it is aware. Every item in the universe shares some kind of consciousness. And uh, actually, that's what, what begins to explain the laws of nature as well. It is the consciousness and different levels of different things that guides them into patterns which we call the laws of nature. In, in Kabbalistic views, uh, you can take this even a step further and enunciate a paradox. You might say that the less developed a thing is, the more it is conscious of the existence of God. In other words, human beings, because of our ability to choose, because of our superior intellectual qualities, we can conceal the uh, presence of God to a much greater degree. Animals can be aware of things, like uh, Balaam's uh, talking donkey, can be aware of things that humans cannot see, because they're not as conceited through their intellectual superiority as to cover up and not admit obvious divine presence in the world. And rocks... Oh, rocks are even something else. In in the uh, book uh, Beis Yaakov by the middle Rabbi of Ishbitza, he makes a statement that things that don't move, for example, in a rock, a rock cannot move. That is because it's mobilized by its overwhelming awareness of the presence of God. Things that move have more independence, more arrogance, more conceit, less perception of God right there with them. And things that think like me do uh, are even um, less aware. <clears throat> it's conceit, it's arrogance, it's denial, it's being able to think on your own that uh, prevents complete subjugation and nullification within the divine. Fine. As I said, Panpsychism is not inherently religious. But it is certainly to me appears to be very compatible. And it is a scientific discussion. So that's its advantage. It doesn't come from the past. It comes from the present. So where did the Spirit of God go? It seems it never left. It seems it has always been there and it is still there in some way, breathing life into the universe. 
and being accessible to our perception, thereby driving religious quest and religious feeling and sensitivity. Thank you for listening. We will get more into the story of creation next time. All the blessings to you and best wishes.